The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Appreciate that very good prayer, and certainly, as I've already said, I need, I beg, a continued interest in your prayers. Tonight, I want to talk to you about playing the long game. Playing the long game. You've heard that phrase, I'm sure, and you know, I know what it means, but I decided to look it up uh, just to kind of give us a little better idea of what it means to play the long game as opposed to playing the short game. And in the, don't, don't laugh, this is some kind of urban dictionary I found online, okay? So uh, it's, I think it's called the American Urban Dictionary, but, but, uh, but it's a pretty good definition, okay? And, and this is what it means when somebody says, I'm going to play the long game. That means you're, you have long, a long-term plan, uh, you have long-term goals, or you're doing things now that set you up for the future, okay? That set you up for the future. And the idea is that somebody who's playing the long game uh, will encounter things in the short term that may uh, be a problem, may be an obstacle to overcome, may be a setback, in fact, but when you're playing the long game, you don't get uh, thrown off by the things that come up in front of you, and, and you also don't simply plan for that short-term gain or that short-term decision. And, and so someone who's playing the long game is, is not as likely to get... Uh, to make bad decisions, to make snap decisions, uh, to react to that which is right there in front of you and end up in a bad situation. As opposed to that, the one who's playing the long game will see this short-term issue and will decide to, to make, a, will make a decision to deal with that short-term issue with the goal still in mind. The idea that I've got a long-term plan. I'm playing the long game. And, and even though this is kind of a setback or this is a problem I've got to deal with, I'm going to resolve it in such a way, I'm going to deal with it in such a way that it will not set me back on my long-term plans. I'm playing the long game, not the short game. Now, if you're playing the short game, that means really what you're doing, and I'm sorry to say most of the time that's me, is I'm just reacting to this thing that's happening and that thing that's happening. You know, it's, it's the, eye, the same situation of someone who's adrift in the midst of a hurricane. You're just trying to get over the next wave and hope that next wave doesn't swamp you. Now, someone who is in that hurricane in a boat that they prepared and something that has a good motor on it, they're, they're dealing with those short-term waves that are right in front of them, but their goal is to get out of the hurricane and they're pressing toward that goal. Playing the long game. In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah begins to write to the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, actually. I may use Judah and Israel interchangeably, but you understand that by this time, the ten northern tribes, which were called Israel, had already been dispersed among the nations by the Assyrians and some 120 years later 
the southern nation of Judah, which was the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah, uh, were still in existence, but were about to be carried off captive. And in fact, during the time Jeremiah is writing, it has happened. They're going to be carried off captive into Babylon. And we call that the Babylonian captivity. <clears throat> and it was not something that was haphazard. It was not something that just, uh, they just came upon and tripped over and took God and everybody else by surprise. There's a little background to it, which we'll talk about. But in this day, in chapter 29, as Jeremiah begins to write, you're going to see, for example, just look at verse 1. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem under the residue of the elders which were carried away captives and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. The, the king Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians has come down and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the place where the true worship of God was being done in the right way and taken them captive and, and, and God is telling him, here's your ministry. And he's writing a letter to those that were carried away into Babylon. And he's saying, this is what God says. And verses 2 and 3 basically just tell you about how he got the letter there to them. But notice in verse 4, he says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. He establishes here that what I'm about to tell you is the word of God. Now keep in mind that the Babylonian captivity, this was the most traumatic historical event in the history of Judaism to this point. Jesus is coming for the first time in another 500 years or so. But at this point, this was the most traumatic historical event that had occurred. Now what God does through the, the mouth of Jeremiah is he gives them some guidance as they are in exile in Babylon, okay? And here's where it's important that those children of God in that day not be living for the moment, not be playing the short game, but that they be playing the long game. And and this chapter gives us a little insight into what that means. So let's look at it for a few minutes. First of all, we, we've talked just a little bit about why, about them being in exile. I want to talk for a minute about why they were in exile. And verse 4 establishes it. It says, these are those whom I have caused to be carried away. Now, we don't believe the Bible teaches that everything that happens is caused by God. In fact, most of the things that happen to us in this life are caused by sin and the consequences of that. Either your own sins or the sins of somebody else. God didn't cause the man to kidnap this young lady out of Auburn and murder her, and now he's on trial for that. He, the God didn't cause that. But there are some things in the Word of God that we know that God did cause. And usually when He causes that, kind of thing or even today when he causes something to come upon us in the form of chastening you're going to know about it I've, I've, I've always thought about this that, uh, that you know in my, in my life as a father when my kids were young I didn't just run out into the yard with a belt and start wailing away on them and beating them 
and not tell them why. You know, that would have been kind of foolish. That's, that's child abuse. If I ever disciplined them and with corporal punishment, it was I told them why, okay? They understood why. I've had people before that, uh, that are experiencing things like cancer and sickness and death and sorrow and so forth, and they'll say, Preacher, why, what have I done that the Lord is chastening me for? And my answer to them is, is if you don't know, it's probably not the Lord chastening you. Because God's a better da daddy than I'll ever be. And, and I didn't do that to my kids. I'll tell you this. I've been chastened by God multiple times in my life. And not one time did I have to wonder why. <laughs> I knew it every single time. If you have any kind of spiritual discernment whatsoever, you're going to know why God is chastening you. So... If you're in, the, you're in the situation, say, I just don't know why God is doing this to me. Listen, God gets blamed for a lot of stuff he ain't doing, okay? There's a lot of problems out there that are caused by men. Some are caused by me. <laughs> in fact, I'd say the vast majority of the problems that come upon me are my own fault. Things that I've done. But not always. There's been some suffering in my life that had nothing to do with me committing sin. It had to do with others around me committing sin. Or it had to do with the fact that we live in a sin-cursed world. Amen. The problem with absolute predestinationists, those who believe that every single thing that happens uh, is, abs is absolutely predestinated and unalterably fixed by God, is it, as I heard, I heard Brother Sonny Piles put it this way one time, so I'm stealing from him, but oh, what a place to steal from, Brother Furman. <laughs> That's a good place to get it, isn't it? Brother Sonny Piles said the problem with the absoluter is he believes, God, he believes God deals with all the people all the time like he dealt with some of the people some of the time. So don't ever expand it farther than you're supposed to and then the, that the Lord intended. But also don't miss the point that there are times when God brings things upon his people. The Babylonian captivity is something that God brought upon his people. He didn't predestinate it. He didn't cause them to commit the sinful acts that, that Nebuchadnezzar committed you know, in doing this. In fact, he tells us, sometime you might read about it in Isaiah chapter 10. In Isaiah chapter 10, he talks about the fact that, that these uh, they went down there on their own. They went down there with their own motivation. They went down there to show how big and bad they were. And then the Lord chasing them for it. <laughs> But my point is this, is in this case, there's a reason for why they're down there. God caused them to be carried away. Why would God do a thing like that? And in 2 Kings chapter 24, let's just begin reading in verse 1. In his days, he's talking about Jehoiakim, who was one of the sons of Josiah. He said, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him the bands of the Chaldees, bands of the Syrians, bands of the Moabites, and bands of the children of Ammon, and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servants the prophets. So, there's a reason God's doing it, and he didn't do it without telling them why. <laughs> See here, that's God, once again, being the good father that even I am not. I tried to be a good father, but God's so much better than me, and he's told them. You know, I never did whip my kids for doing something that I hadn't told them not to do in the first place. 
Did you? I mean, you tried to tell them, don't go over there and do this. Don't, you know, don't ride down that trail. Don't go to this place. It was after I told them, and they did it anyway, that I spanked them. And this is what God said. He had sent by his servants the prophets and told them, in verse 3, Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he did, and also for the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. Beloved, this is one of the reasons and appears to me that this is the primary reason that God brought this captivity upon the nation of Israel. They were going against what he had told them to do. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. God hates that kind of vile actions on the parts of his people. He hates it on the part of those that aren't his people. But listen, if you'll read about Manasseh, you'll find he appears to be one of God's children. He certainly was the king of God's chosen nation. Later on in 2 Chronicles, you'll read about how, the, how that Manasseh repented after he had been carried off captive himself. He appears to be one of God's children. God hates it in general, but he really hates it when you and I do it. He really hates it. He said, the Lord would not pardon the shedding of this innocent blood. And then over to 2 Chronicles in chapter 36, get a little more insight. 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 14. It wasn't just Manasseh that was the problem, although he was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will. Verse 14, 2 Chronicles 36. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgress very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. They were committing some terrible sins over there. Can you imagine what it would look like if, if we took this house, this building here, and we started introducing into it some of the practices of the world, some of the activity. I don't mean just practices of the Christian religious world. What if we had a what if we had a little Buddha set up up here somewhere? What if we had a little shrine to Buddha over here on the left side? And, and when you came in, if you, if you wanted to, you could just come up here and burn a little incense. What if over here on the right side we had a Hindu god or two set up? What, what would happen if we had that done? And then we got up here and preached Jesus, but we said, you know, Jesus is just one of the ways. I know it said he was the way, but... He didn't really mean that. He's just one way. We're all headed to the same place. And, and, and if you want to get there by burning incense to, to Buddha then, and just living a good life, just go ahead and do that. Some say it's the blood of Jesus, but hey, you know, we just all need to love each other and get along. That's what the world's really teaching right now, isn't it? And by the way, I know what would happen if we came in here one Sunday morning and there was a little Buddha sitting over here. And there was a little Hindu god sitting over here. Uh, we'd be burying Mackie and Loreen that next day, <laughs> for one thing. And we'd have others come in here with an axe and start uh, start hacking things up. And I'd probably be fired pretty quickly as your pastor. And that's what should happen. <laughs> so, but here's what was happening in that day. They had Manasseh even set up gods. Actually, he shut down the temple. He shut it down. And it says that. They polluted the house of the Lord. In verse 15, it, wasn't, it gets worse. 
the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes. That word means early, rising up early and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Well, God's a good father, like I said, and he didn't just say, okay, now they're messing up. But I'm going to go tell them they're messing up. I'm going to send this prophet and send that prophet. And I'm going to make them know where their error is. But look what they did. Verse 16. They mocked the messengers of God. And despised his words. And misused his prophets. Until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. Till there was no remedy. That's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? Did you know that there gets to be a point in the life of a child of God who's disobedient and going his own way and ignoring God and not only ignoring God but mocking him to where there is no remedy? Did you know that? I think that happens in the life of churches, Brother Ball. I believe it happens. I believe we've probably seen it. Brother Mackey and some others have probably seen that happen in the life of God's churches to where there's no longer an option. I've experienced that, I believe, in, in, a, in, a, in a different order one time about a situation where I believe God removed the candlestick from the church because of something the church did. No remedy. No remedy. Now, now, now remember, <laughs> we're talking about children of God here. I mean, I'm not worried about the heathen out there, the non-elect, the reprobate. They're not going to listen anyway. There's no remedy for them. And in the ultimate end that they'll face is eternal hell. So this preaching here is not to those that are reprobate. The preaching is to God's children. And that's my preaching tonight. That's my preaching tonight. We're told in Hebrews, I believe it's the 10th chapter, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We're told later on in Hebrews that our God is a consuming fire. <laughs> I want to tell you, beloved, I don't, I've been chastened by God. I don't want to be chastened by God again. Yes, I'm still a sinner. And yes, I do sin every day. But I've been the recipient of the chastening of God when I went so contrary to his will in my life that I felt he was clean gone forever. And that's a bad place to be. It's especially a bad place to be when you're a preacher. Because <laughs> I, I was thinking, how am I ever going to get up and preach again? <laughs> because I've, I feel him to be clean gone forever. I could feel no presence of the Lord with me whatsoever. And it wasn't because he had left me. It was because I had left him. You see, just like in the case of the prodigal son, the, the father was still where he'd always been. It wasn't the father that had to come to where the son was. It was the son that needed to go back to where the father was. But by the way, I draw some great comfort from that story. Because the only time in scripture that I can read that anyone who represented God by type or shadow ever ran was in the time when he saw his son coming from afar off and the father ran to him. You know, God don't run. <laughs> he don't run from anything. There's nothing too big for God. But I'm so thankful that there are times when he runs to his children. Because sometimes that way back is farther. Brother Buddy preached on that not too long ago about how 
when you go a few steps down the road of error, it takes about twice that many steps to get back. Amen. <laughs> it's, not, it's not just like, oh, I'll go down here and then come right back. Things are so messed up by the time you get down there, it takes you a long rigmarole, a long way around to get back to where you were. But praise God, sometimes the Lord short circuits it and runs to you, you see. <clears throat> It's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. Ask any one of those Jewish elders in that day how bad it is to be chastened by God. To be uprooted from your home and to be taken 600 and some odd miles away, which was a big deal back in that day. Yeah, I know Brother Buddy's in Las Vegas, which is about 2,500 miles away, and Lord willing, he'll be flying home tomorrow in about a four and a half hour flight. <laughs> but a 600 mile trip in that day was more than a four and a half hour flight. It was a long, it was a lifetime away. The captivity here was directly related to their disobedience of God. By the way, I find it interesting, do you not? That the captivity in Babylon in that day was caused by sin. And have you thought about the fact that we're now captives in spiritual Babylon. And we have been since the Garden of Eden. What was it caused by? Caused by sin. That song we sing, Babylon is Fallen. Oh, I, I know that's kind of a hard song to sing, Brother Mackey, and I know it's kind of difficult and we kind of laugh about it when we sing it. Oh, but let me tell you something. It's one of my favorite songs. Babylon is fallen. It's fallen. It's fallen. Babylon is fallen. <laughs> oh, one day. What a glorious day that will be. But right now, we're captives in Babylon, you see. We are exiled into Babylon, spiritually speaking. We're living in a place that is contrary to the Word of God, is contrary to God, is in enmity to God, and is not our home. We're told by Paul in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 that our conversation is in heaven. And that literally means our citizenship, our lifestyle, our lives are in heaven. We are citizens of heaven even while we dwell in this fallen Babylon that we're in today. So, okay, we know why they were there. So what is the letter about? Well, the letter that, Je that uh, Jeremiah is writing to those captives in Babylon is to tell them some things that will hopefully help them get their focus off the short game and start playing the long game. And he's going to tell them some things that, that will help them if they will adhere to them and encourage them if they'll take them to heart. So look at what he says. First of all, he tells them this is how, this is how you need to live when you're captive in Babylon. Verse 5. Build ye houses and dwell in them. And plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. First of all, he says, you need to establish yourselves as productive citizens in this new place where you are. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't go away from here. Say, Brother Chris said we need to assimilate into the society. That's not what he's saying, and that's not what I'm saying, and that's not what the Jews did. Some did, but mostly they stayed separate. The principle of staying separate still applies. We are, we are a peculiar people. And people say amen to that. <laughs> we are a peculiar people, okay? We are supposed to be separate 
we're not supposed to be a part of the sinful society out there in the sense that we assimilate and start acting like them. That's not what I'm preaching here tonight. That wasn't what Je Jeremiah was preaching. But what he was saying is, don't get over there and become monks. You know, you know the monasteries and the nunneries that were out, out established in the Middle Ages and a little bit before, they were so contrary to the Word of God, and, and that's why they never worked. God didn't say, okay, when you become a child of God, you need to now get out of the society, get away from everybody, go lock yourself in a room and try to avoid all temptations because I want to tell you something. The devil is not bound by a locked door. <laughs> and, uh, and also your mind, even if the devil can't get in, your mind is in there. Some people have this idea that if the devil weren't weren't out there walking around to and fro, it would be a sin-free world. This would not be a sin-free world. You are corrupted by sin. You're, you can't always say the devil made me do it. In fact, you can't ever really say that. <laughs> the devil may tempt you to do it, but you're going to be tempt, move, pulled away of your own lusts. That's what James tells us. Even if we didn't have a devil, we would still live in a sin-cursed world. You'd still be a sinner. And you'd still have problems. But what he says here is, again, keeping in mind that we're to, and he, we'll see a little more of this as we go along. We're not saying assimilate into the culture, but he is saying you need to dwell in this land, live there, work there, contribute to the commerce, contribute to the community, participate in the activities, be good citizens, build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens. And eat the fruit of them. Just live a normal life. That's what he's saying. Live a normal Don't go crazy and lose it, if you will, because of the uprooting that's occurred due to the chastening of God. And what he's saying is wherever you are, you know, Paul said, in whatsoever state I'm in, I've learned therein to be content. He said, be content. You're over there because God sent you there. God's punishing you. God's chastening you. I guess God really never actually punishes his children. The wrath of God doesn't ever get poured out on his children. That's reserved for the reprobate. But the chastening of God, the chastening hand of God occasionally does. And he said, even in this circumstance, just live a normal life. Establish yourselves as productive citizens. And then he says, verse 6, take ye wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters. Now listen, that ye may be increased there, and not diminished. By the way, doesn't that remind you what Jesus said about the parable of the mustard seed? Or the parable of the leaven? He said, you know, and that's in one of, one of the few cases where leaven is a good thing over in Matthew chapter 13. He said the kingdom of God's like that. It starts out really small, but it blossoms out. It starts out as a really small part of the dough and eventually it takes over the whole thing. You know what he's saying here? He's saying in the place where God has put you, due to your own disobedience, you nonetheless need to submit to that chastening and, and grow as a people and don't languish. He says, I want you to be increased there and not diminished. While we are in spiritual Babylon, we don't need... We don't need to be over in the corner, hiding out, kind of circled up, us four and no more. <laughs> you know, that's not what we're here for. We're not here to, to try to just 
never interact and never do anything with people. You, do you know that's how, the, that's how the church is supposed to grow? It's through the daily interactions of God's people. I'm thankful for great revivals that occur. I'm, I'm thankful for, for meetings where revival occurs. I'm thankful for the times when we have 200 people here and we have 20 confessions of faith and people come down and join the church. That's wonderful. But you know how it normally happens? It doesn't happen like that. It happens when, when I'm at work and somebody says, where do you go to? I'm primitive. What's up? Primitive Baptist. Where do you mean? What is it? How are y'all doing? And I say, this is the thing that we believe. This is how we go. Hey, hey, just come and see. Just come and see. See, and it's not just my job, by the way. Make sure you remember that. It's not just my job as a preacher. I'm the leader, but I'm not the one that makes it happen, okay? I can't lead a people that's passive and apathetic, you know? And I'm not saying you are because I don't believe you are. I know you're out there promoting the cause and the kingdom of Christ. But you've got to remember that and keep it up because the preacher can't do it all. Oh, I can preach eloquent messages. I can preach great with great oratory, but if nobody's here... It doesn't do any good, does it? And the way they, the people get here is by the people you live and work with, you see. And that's what he's saying here. He said, don't diminish. Don't go out there and lock your doors and circle your wagons and not have any interaction. He says, grow as a people. We're to be salt and light. You can't be salt and light if you're building a compound and keeping everybody else out. See, we want to interact. We want to live normal lives. And then in verse 7, he says, And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof ye shall have peace. That kind of sounds strange. Remember, this is the Babylonians that just murdered a bunch of the Jews and carried them all forcibly away. Put out the, He took the sons of the king. Nebuchadnezzar took the sons of the king, Zedekiah, and he slew those sons in front of the king, and then he put Zedekiah's eyes out so that the last thing he saw with his natural eyes was his sons being murdered. That's a pretty bad sight and a bad thought, isn't it? These aren't, these aren't good folks. These are wicked folks. You want, to, you want me to pray for him? You want me to pray for these people that are so hateful to God? I'd, I'd rather be like Jonah. I'd rather just say, no, Lord, I'm not going down there to preach to those Ninevites because sure as I do, they'll repent and you'll forgive them. And the next thing you know, I'll have to spend eternity in heaven with them. <laughs> now, I know that it wasn't the preaching that got that done, but God said, I've got, I think it's 120,000 people down there that don't know their right hand from their left. My children that are in Nineveh that don't have a clue about the fact that I'm the God they need to be worshiping. Jonah's kind of like, I hate to admit it, Jonah and I, we see some things sometimes the same. I like to prove points. I don't know about you. I like to say, ha, gotcha, you know. You deserve that, you know. That's, that's my nature is what I want to say. I've been telling you, now you're suffering. But you know, Jonah went through and preached and they repented and God forgave them and Jonah is the only one that suffered. <laughs> He had, to, he had to spend three days and nights in the belly of the fish. And then he had to, he, he, he left the dark, dank, cold fish belly. And he ends up sitting under a dried up gourd in the desert. About to have a heat stroke. That's where we see, we, we see Jonah going from the belly of the fish to the, to the, to the bright sun of the desert. And, and angry all the time. 
See, don't be that way. He said, Jeremiah said, don't be that way. Go over there and pray for the peace of Babylon. Pray for the peace of the city where you are because in in the peace of that city, you will be blessed. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 1, he says, I exhort therefore that first of all, this sounds like it's a priority, doesn't it? First of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Well, we need to be praying for one another and for all men. But notice verse 2, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. I confess that I see people in Washington, D.C., that I don't really know if they're children of God or not. That's not my place to say, but they sure don't act like it. And they are opposed to everything I hold dear as a child of God. And I don't want to pray for them. I want to curse at them. But God said, pray for them. Pray for them. You know one of the reasons I don't want to pray for them? Because it's hard to stay mad at somebody you're praying for. You ever thought about that? Think about your worst enemy, somebody around here that's done you wrong. Start praying for them. See how mad you can stay at them. You can't. (laughs) At the worst, you'll end up feeling pity for them. But that's my nature, and that's why God had to tell me to do otherwise, because my nature should not be my guide. He said, for kings and for all that are in authority, and the reason we should do this, the reason we should be praying is not so that we can take over the government. I want the conservative, Christian, Bible-believing people to be in charge. I do. I, I pray for that. I want that. But don't ever get mixed up on the idea that the reason you're praying for them is so that we can take over the government and start implementing Christian principles because it ain't ever going to happen. Salvation is not coming through politics. Salvation is not coming through the political system. Here's the reason we should be praying. Not so that we can have some kind of takeover, but that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Isn't that something? That's really all we need as children of God. Now, now don't give me, it's, it's okay to participate in government. You should. I mean, I do, you know that. And it's not a sin for me to participate as a member of the government, as, a, as a, an elected official or, or an, a person in the administration. It's okay for you to do that. We should do that. Daniel did it. Nehemiah did it. Many people have done it through the years that were children of God and were able to make some things better, hopefully, for children of God. But the purpose of our praying And as a church particularly, is so that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life. And you know, it's amazing to look and see how that we can do that in every kind of government there is. I'm so thankful for the freedoms we enjoy in America. I believe in liberty. I believe in justice. I believe in freedom. And I pray that this nation stays a free nation. But you know what? If it were a monarchy if it were a despotism, if it were a tyranny, if it were an emperorship that led us, we can still live quiet and peaceable lives if the Lord will bless us. So don't get me wrong, I'll fight for her. 
I'll go to war if I have to. <laughs> Although once they start drafting people like me, Brother Mackey, we kind of probably need to start negotiating terms. But anyway, uh, but, but I will fight if I have to. But I'll tell you this, I'm not praying for America to survive so that we can dominate the world. I'm praying for America to survive so that we can live quiet and peaceable lives. That's what he says. Pray for the peace of this country. He said, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. This, will, this is the, the purpose and the desire here is that we might help extend the kingdom of God to the modern day culture. That's the purpose. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about adding people to the kingdom of God, making new children of God. But I'm talking about adding people to the visible kingdom of God, the church of the living God, promoting and, 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 and causing the church to prosper by preaching the things that God would have us to do. I'll tell you something that's interesting. Years later, okay, years later, 70 years later actually, God allowed them to go back to Jerusalem. And in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, we read about that. Cyrus, the Persian king, who, he, the Persians defeated the Babylonians, and Cyrus issued a decree and said, y'all can go back. And you know what one of the things was that he said? He said, when you go back, I want y'all to reestablish the temple worship, the proper worship of God as you see fit. And by the way, while you're there, pray for me. <laughs> pray, for, pray for the king and his and his court and all this. You know, you know what they'd done at that point? Cyrus knew about Nebuchadnezzar. Cyrus knew that Nebuchadnezzar had been turned out like a wild animal, had lost his mind, had lost his sentience, and came back and said, listen, I'm going to worship the God uh, of Daniel. I'm going to worship the God of the Hebrews because he has all power in heaven and in earth. He has his way with the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the land, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? He knew about that God. He said, you know, and I'm sure, I don't know if Cyrus was a child of God or not. He may have just been a superstitious guy. But let me tell you something. One thing I've found when I've been out in the, in the hallways of this, of this state and working in the government of this state, there's a lot of superstitious people out there that call themselves Christians. <laughs> but they're really just superstitious. They really don't know what the Bible says. I'm not saying they're not children of God, but they're like, and they see a preacher come on and say, oh, I better act differently. You know, some don't like it. But some are like, man, okay, you pray, pray for me, you know. I want Let's talk about it. I've, I've had a blessing from time to time to be able to do devotions in places I wouldn't have gotten to do them if I was holed up in some compound somewhere. You see, that's what the children of God did in that day. They, they delivered the truth of God's word and of God's kingdom to those in power and to those in the culture around them, not just those in power, and it influenced them. I know we're never going to win the world. We're not. We don't want the world here. But we may influence children of God that are out there among this culture that otherwise would never hear the good news of the gospel. The fourth thing he tells them to do, he says in verse 8, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you. Neither hearken to your dreams which ye cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. 
I have not sent them, saith the Lord. What, he, what had happened is, is that Jeremiah was pretty much the lone voice out there saying, guys, the Babylonians are your punishment. They're coming on us because of what we've done and we need to surrender to them. All the other prophets were saying, no, 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 we need to fight. God's going God's to bless us to throw them off like he has in the past. And that's not what God was saying at all. That was untrue. That was false. And he said, don't you listen to false doctrine. Don't you listen to false teaching. He says in Jeremiah chapter 14 and verse 14, he, he makes a statement or two about that. Listen to what he says. Then the Lord said unto me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not. Neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and a divination and a thing of naught and the deceit of their heart. Don't you listen to the false prophets. I don't care how smooth they speak. I don't care how eloquent they are. You ignore them because the truth of God's word is what will stand. He says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will heap unto themselves teachers having itching ears. Don't you fall into that trap. When you're living in Babylon, when you're living in spiritual Babylon or physical Babylon, you ignore the false doctrine. See, that's what I'm talking about earlier. We don't assimilate into the culture. If the culture says, hey, it's all right to live together before marriage, you don't have to worry about what God said about that, reject that. Amen. And you get married instead of living together before marriage. If he said marriage can be anything you want, it can be a man and two women, it could be a woman and three men, it can be two men or two women, it can be, reject that, okay? That's not what God says about it. You live in the culture because you can't help but live there. If, you, if He says in one place, if you're going to get away from all the fornicators of the world, you must needs to go out of the world. Praise God, one day we're going to, but right now we've got to live with them. But you don't have to act like them. Reject false teaching. And then finally, let me just wrap this up. He tells us what they can expect. And this is, this is where it comes back to what I said earlier about playing the long game. He says, you live here, you build houses, you take wives and all that. And if you'll do that, oh man, the Lord will, you, you, you just name it and claim it and the Lord will get you back in Jerusalem next week. Is that what he said? No. Oh, you'll live happily ever after. You'll get back to Jerusalem in just a few months and everything. No, that's not what he said. Remember here that he's already told them, you're not going to see Jerusalem again. Until 70 years have passed. You know what that meant for somebody my age? I'm 52 years old. If I were one of the, el one of the elders or one of the people that were taken captive and put back in Babylon and I'm sitting there bemoaning my state and longing for the promised land that I was taken out of and I get this message and I say, when can I go back? When can I go back? 70 years. <sighs> I just have to hang my head. I'm not going to see it. I'm not going to live to be 122, most likely. Now, now, there were some men we read about in Nehemiah and Ezra, that when they went, and Haggai particularly, that when they went back, they were little kids when they were taken captive, and they went back as old men. Okay, there were some, but for the most part, he's saying, you're not going to see the blessings of God in taking you back to Jerusalem again. You're not going to be able to leave Babylon and get back. You're not going to be able to 
pray through, name it and claim it. This prosperity gospel is not going to work for you, okay? And therefore, you need to be playing the long game. And that means you need to be looking out not just for you and your, yourself, but for your children and your grandchildren. You need to be looking 70 years in the future. You need to be looking in the next generation, in the next generation, and doing things now that will lay the foundation for them, which means you're going to build houses, you're going to dwell there, you're going to live like a Christian in a place that is anti-Christian, and you're going to set an example for them so that when God does deliver them back to the promised land, they'll remember that, and they'll be prepared for it. Verse 10, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and causing you to return to this place. Now, if you're playing the short game, you stop reading right here. You just throw the letter up in the air and you start wailing. Oh, I can't wait 70 years. I can't stand this. But if you're playing the long game, you say, you know what? I think I better keep reading and see what it is God has for me. Notice in verse 11, there's some good news. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Notice, basically what this says is, I've got plans for you. I've got a purpose in your life. And, and it's a hope-filled purpose. Your end is not going to be a desperate end, an end filled with despair. There is hope for you and for your people. I'm going to be doing some things in your life. For See, I'm, you see, he's saying, I'm not a God of the here and now. He said, I am, yes. But I'm not a God that just plays the short game. I'm not a God who just sees the next. I see it all. I know what's coming. I know what I have planned for you. I know what... You can expect, and it is a hope-filled end. It is something that I have for you that is good. See, my God, as we've been preaching in Sunday, in, on Sunday mornings, is a big God. Jeremiah's God was a big God. Jeremiah's God was bigger than the lifespan of Jeremiah. I'm so thankful that's our God today. He's bigger than my lifespan. The older I get, Brother Roger, the more I realize that if I'm going to do anything, I better get to it. <laughs> I got plan. If I got a bucket list, I better get on it because it's, it's just not, you know, when I was 22, I said, I got all my life ahead of me. And we know that even 22 year olds don't always have that. But, you know, at 22, man, I'll never be 52. <laughs> oh, I'm here. I'm 52. <laughs> I don't have 30 more years or 40 more years or 50 more years possibly. I better get on it, you see. But thank God. He is a God who's bigger than my lifespan. By the way, he hadn't come yet the first time. We sang that song, Angels, We Have Heard on High. You know it's only about 500 years from now, from the time of Jeremiah, that there's going to be a day when the sky is going to be lit up to some shepherds on a hillside. 
And they're going to say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. An angel is going to appear to Joseph and say, Joseph, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. For she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There's going to come a day that that the son is darkened and at the end of that time of darkness there's going to be a cry from a cross Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the veil of the temple will be rent in twain from the top to the bottom and three days later there's going to be a, a stone rolled away and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come out of that grave that he was put in the place of defeat they thought which became the place of greatest victory and one day he's going to be standing on the hillside speaking to his disciples and a cloud is going to take him up and there's going to be some angels come back and they say why men of Galilee why stand ye here gazing into the heavens he says this same Jesus that is going away from you he's coming back again in like manner and oh there's going to be a day there's coming a day beloved when all of the spiritual babble and they, all of the problems of life all of the all of the wickedness that we experience everything that we have that's against us will be destroyed this place will be rolled up like a scroll it will be burned up with fervent heat and there will be a trumpet and there will be a shout And there will be uh, uh, graves that will come open. And the Lord Jesus Christ will meet us in the air. We're going home. (laughs) We're going home. And because we're going home, beloved, we don't have to play the short game. This next problem you face, this sickness that overcomes you, this death that afflicts you, this a downturn in the economy does not have to throw us for a loop because praise God we're playing the long game one day he's coming back and we're going to be going home with him that's what Jeremiah was telling those folks there's coming a day now for them it was literally going back to Jerusalem over in the Middle East for us for us it's going home to that heavenly Jerusalem where all the problems that we experience today are going to be passed away. Behold, all things become new. I'm looking forward to that. And you know what? I'm going to try my best this week to play the long game and to try to remember that as I face the trials of life. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.